guys, welcome back to another episode of the Dead Writers Society. If you guys are new, then uh, this is the podcast where we talk about famous writers of our past. Today's episode is about Mark Twain, a sensational all-American writer who was one of the most popular and considered the first great American writers of all time. So... I am Nathaniel Carlisi, and this is my co-host, Louis Amori. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Nathan. I'm very glad to be here today, along with you. But um, I think we should start off by giving um, some background information about Mark Twain. Is that okay with you? Yep. So, um, believe it or not, his name wasn't Mark Twain. That was a pen name. Um, His real name was Samuel Clemens, and he was born... Well, he, he wasn't really born in Hannibal, but that's where he grew up. He grew up in a small backwater town called Hannibal, Missouri. The name for these towns was like all, an all-American town, a town where it was like kind of backwater, like the American frontier. It was cool. Yeah, and I believe that he based much of a lot, like a good majority, or two of his most famous books, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, off of this childhood town where he originally grew up in. And, you know considering that Missouri was in a part of the Deep South, we can assume that he grew up believing in the institution of slavery, but he actually grew to despise it in the future because of various external circumstances. And although he portrays, like in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, that his childhood was really great and nice, it really wasn't all that great and nice, his siblings, his both his brother and his sister, were both they, they both died because of disease, along with his father. And it wasn't uncommon in the South, considering the climate, but all the while, it's still a little bit sad and traumatizing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you're right about the mindset about slavery, though. He definitely did not have a mindset against slavery. After all, being born into the Deep South, he, did, he was raised with the mentality of it is our God-given right to enslave people. He doesn't really see a problem with it. But... Um, Many, like, a lot of things really changed his mind on that subject. Like, for instance, once he was out fishing with his friends when he was a teenager, like uh, 12, 13 years old, and when he was fishing, he found a dead uh, slave floating on the wind- river. He yeah. kind of traumatized him, you know? Yeah. Uh, it woke him up, sort of, from the South ideals, and he kind of started thinking for himself in the fact of, <laughs> is it really moral if I'm finding a dead guy floating down the river? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's not funny. But, um, yeah, I feel like the scars of his childhood were definitely, they definitely played a big role in, you know, his persuasion or his, like, at least the beginning of his doubt. It, that It stemmed from that, um, you know, the his, like, he's doubting the morality of slavery despite what he grew up in. And in the future, he went on to discuss um, slavery and just abolition with his family and freed slaves, and that eventually also converted him into an abolitionist. And he was actually even a very big fan of Abraham Lincoln, and once Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation um, to the Confederate States, he stated that it would not only set the blacks free, but set the white man free also, you know, figuratively and literally because... It was just kind of this weight of the oppression they put on the African-Americans. And it was just finally lifted. I mean, although there was 
confusion between everyone afterwards. It definitely did help. Oh, yeah, for sure. And speaking on that whole Lincoln thing, um, Lincoln's brother, a surviving brother, that is, Orion, um, actually, he was pretty cool. He supported Lincoln so much that Lincoln, uh, it's kind of against the rules. It was like the spoil system. Uh, it's not. It's kind of frowned upon, but he, he gave Orion, um, Clement's brother, the position of secretary of the um, ter- territorial secretary of Nebraska. So um, Sam, that was kind of like Sam's last piece of family other than his mother. He wasn't too fond of his mother, however, because of traumatizing events in the past where she told him that she would have liked it if he died. Um, yeah. But so he went along, he titled him with his brother to Nebraska. Um, once he got there, then he realized that he like start writing, so he took up a job at a newspaper, and um, once he got there, then he started realizing, oh my god, corruption's like a big deal. He, so he, as a journalist, he took advantage of his powers, and he started um, writing about it a lot more, and honestly gained quite a few enemies. A lot of people did not like him in that town, because he was exposing the police for corruption, he was exposing the, the mayor, and all the state senators. It was, it was a nasty deal, and so... He eventually just kind of left, and um, he kind of had a hiatus from Nebraska. That's kind of where he first started his writing career, because he was in this old gold mining town. He heard the story about a jumping frog, which doesn't sound that remarkable to me, but apparently it did to him, because he wrote an entire book called The um, Celebration of the Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. I think that's how you pronounce it. But... Um, that really, he used his pen name for that, and that really kind of, like, boosted him up into, like, the mainstream media because people understood, like, hey, this guy's a good author. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, all the corruption that was happening catalyzed his career, catapulted it. But, I mean, it also ultimately is what led to his pen name or pseudonym, Mark Twain, because, obviously, I personally, I don't think his original name was that good, so good for him that he changed it but um since he was speaking out against corruption you know he was pretty much becoming a target for anybody he was you know going against or exposing so he used that to conceal his identity and eventually you know he went on to write you know the adventures of huckleberry finn which was released you know post-civil war i believe you know even towards the end of reconstruction it was anti-racism not anti-slavery which is like very confusing for a lot of people but it just kind of exposed how slaves were treated. And it had to do with a lot about what was happening in the world around him regarding black codes and segregation that was, like, all over the South. And this is, like, just a direct reflection of what he experienced in Nebraska. He was just speaking out against what he thought was wrong and, you know, all while doing that under a pen name. And despite, you know, he did hate slavery at one point of his life, but he actually fought in a Confederate militia. Uh, during the part of the Civil War, but he didn't do that because he was supporting slavery. It was more like states' rights. He was a states' rights kind of guy, which is very interesting, considering how intelligent he is. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, he actually, um, before, like, during the Civil War, he had a dream of becoming a steamboat pilot. And that's what he did in the Confederate Army, was he piloted steamboats. Uh, he left that dream behind because as the Union was pushing up the Mississippi River, then he realized that if he stayed there, then he'd get impressed 
by the Union Army and did not want that to happen. And also, um, according to his comrades, his loyalty to the Confederacy was kind of half-hearted. Speaking of guns and war, uh, we're of course about sponsored cold firearms. Hello, all y'all fellers. Listen here. Do you want to feel unlimited power? Well, have we got the thing for you. Introducing the Colt 1903 semi-auto model. Yup, this here's a killer. And we even snagged a photo of Mark Twain himself holding it. Peculiar looking feller, but he did a smacking job promoting it. Get yours today. We are not liable for any duels or thefts resulting in death or destruction. Thank you, Colt Firearms. Now, back to our podcast. Twain, after the Civil War, was really seemed to be a changed man. He kind of ditched all um, ideas of like the South being in the right. And really, the only reason why he ever fought against the North in the first place was because he kind of wanted to protect his home. And with that kind of no longer an issue, because he realized that it was about slavery now instead of states' rights, then he focused more on his, on his writing than um, the war. Um, I already mentioned how he wrote the celebrated jumping frog of uh, Calvarez County, and that really only um, boosted his popularity as more people read it, which kind of got him more out into the more known as a writer in general. Mm, yeah, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County. I think that was probably his first um, kind of example, or it was his debut of regionalistic of like a regionalistic approach to writing. And, you know, the most successful book that he had, or not one, not the most successful, but one of the most successful books he had with regionalistic approach was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which, you know, it was a direct representation of the better part of his childhood, the part without the dead slave in the river and his mom telling him he wished he died and his dad and his sister and his brother dying. But, um, just to like clarify, if you do you know what regionalistic is, but no, you probably do. But it, the audience, it's basically it became increasingly popular during the Industrial Revolution. It was a style of writing that portrayed what it was like to live in a certain part of a region. In this case, it was the South, and specifically in the South, the frontier. And he kind of used a style of writing to bring back what living life in the frontier was like because. Life wasn't as quaint as it was before the Civil War. It was much more urbanized because of several reasons. That's kind of the, the power of Tom Sawyer was that it, it allowed a, a child who was working uh, 12 hours uh, per day in a factory to learn and kind of be, kind of escape to a quaint little town on a river. That uh, Tom Sawyer, he goes and fights pirates and explores caves and stuff. It's just... It was very popular due to the monopolization of several things that caused really the very, very rigid social classes. Because before, um, before the whole urbanization, then it was possible that if you didn't make it in the city, then you could just go on the Homestead Act and get um, free land. Really, you can make you can make your own destiny with all that land taken up. Now, there's no real place to go. So if you don't make it in the city, you don't make a period, and. Um, and also, like, due to the railroad being built, um, that also contributed to the frontier shrinking because now people were being transported out there easier. The gold rush was a huge uh, pull factor. All these things were um, limiting people's options, and it kind of 
restricted them to cities and to factory life. Um, so his work really just served as an escape. Uh, during, due, also do the railroads and, and kind of just businesses and corporations taking over, like um, Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company, where he just did horizontal integration. He just bought everything all around him and set several, like thousands of people out of jobs, old mom-and-pop oil stores, which I didn't even know existed. Like, could you imagine going down and being like, I want oil from mom-and-pop? I can definitely imagine why that'd be really weird to just go down to the corner store and be like, I need some oil. However, now that we are on the topic of oil, I want to go ahead and turn it to our sponsor, the Standard Oil Company. Take it away. Hey, I'm Mr. Rockefeller. You might know me because I'm the one who has all the oil in your lamps. I let out your homes. And that's why I'm asking that you denounce the mom and pop stores. After all, for my horizontal integration to work, they can't be making that much money. Don't you agree that my lamps are so much more reliable? Now that I've taken over the oil thing, I literally have a monopoly of it. I control every single aspect of it, which makes me the most reliable choice. Please, it's what our troops have been fighting for since 1803. Thank you, Mr. Rockefeller, for those wonderful words. You light up our lamps along with lighting up our lives. However, Mark Twain was not a big fan of your monopolistic systems. He hated inequality, and he was especially inspired to write The Gilded Age because of the vast amount of labor unions that were created at that time to fight the injustices put against factory workers. The Gilded Age was not only one of Twain's lesser-known works, but it was a term for the corrupt late 1800s that he wrote with his friend Charles Dudley, who was an essayist from a farm in Massachusetts. And this book, pretty the entire purpose is it, it like just serves as a satire for the post-Civil War corruption that had been planting itself in American cities and businesses. What like a really good example of this is Boss Tweed. He was the head of one of the biggest political machines that dominated New York, swayed elections, and ruined innocent people's lives. These people were awful. They did everything they could to control every aspect of the economy. And shortly after he published that, he also published The Adventures of Tom Sawyer after the Compromise of 1877, which was basically like an unofficial agreement that all of the Union troops pulled out of the Free South. And do you want to explain why they pulled out of the South, Nathan? Yeah, okay, so they pulled out of the, out of the South because um, the president election was tied, which doesn't happen that often. But we have fail-safes for that. It goes to um, the Congress. Congress votes tied. So we made an unofficial deal. A Republican would stay in the presidency. But we would have to pull out of the South. Especially after we left the South, institutionalized and now constitutional oppression, of freedmen was legal such as the jim crow laws which was it just served to basically take away all of the rights legally that the amendments had now granted the uh, african-americans that were previously freed 
And I think this really can be compared to several other institutions or ideals, really, that were used to oppress a specific group of people. You can go as far back as the exploration or colonization period with, you know, the English and Spanish crown wanting to use the concept of God, glory, gold as justification for taking away the lands of several Native Americans. And afterwards, you can see this with slavery, Manifest Destiny, which was just westward expansion that was justified because God wanted it, even though he really didn't. And it can even be seen in the time period where Mark Twain was mostly an adult with social Darwinism that the justification for treating or mistreating factory workers as less of was adequate because the leaders of monopolies worked very hard to get where they are. So they deserve to be swimming in billions of dollars while their workers were scrambling for food and for money to support themselves. Yeah, to kind of um, piggyback off what you said, the Jim Crow South after Reconstruction was really a awful time in our nation's history. I mean, we had the Ku Klux Klan, which before was kind of, I wouldn't say docile, but they were not as threatening because the Union troops kind of kept them in check. With the Union troops out of the South, then there was really no one to put them in check. So they were massacring um, minorities in general, be it um, black people, white people who supported black people, um, gay people, anyone. They just didn't care. They were discriminatory against everyone. And with the Plessy versus Ferguson case with the Supreme Court, it made it so that segregation was legal, which is um, the whole idea of separate but equal means that it's not against the Constitution. Well, the South kind of got away with it because, in truth, it was separate, but it was not equal. I think Mark Twain kind of saw through that and was like, oh, that's not cool. And being the guy he is, he hates inequality. So he's going to write um, his book about that where all the characters are kind of looking down on it. And it's going to have about the same effect as Uncle Tom's Cabin did on the population and laying the groundwork for the Civil War. Then it's going to have about the same effect as um, his book because they were both anti... Um, they were both for like a civil rights movement. And really, they both supported it a lot. Speaking of crazy decisions, um, like Pussy versus Ferguson, here's a word from our sponsor, Coquina. lately a lack of energy well have i got a product for you introducing coquina now in partnership with coca-cola this instant mood booster gives you so much energy and a willingness to learn use code crack in a store to get 50 percent off as you can see coquina is really amazing I would, I, I'm proud to say that I am a user. Um, anyways, referring to what we were talking about with the whole Plessy versus Ferguson and blatant racism thing, Mark Twain, as we mentioned several times earlier, decided to write his second and more famous book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which was, like the Gilded Age, a satire of re- real world problems. And he attempted to address anti-racism and just anti-inequality ideals in general because he aligned himself with those things and it was an extremely multifaceted novel because it could not only be used to just look at 
racism. It could be used to question social stratification as a whole because Finn throughout the book does that. He's faced with this several, like, he's say, he's faced with internal conflict where he just doesn't know whether this unjust treatment of African-Americans is okay. And it's just not unjust treatment specifically of African-Americans. It can be applied to several ideas. Even if you read it today, you can probably apply it to something you have experienced or another person can experience. Don't you agree with that, Nathan? Yes, I do. And you know what? It's kind of kind of crazy because the book itself became very popular, not only the North, but also the South. Um, you think that's kind of weird because, you know, it's denouncing slavery and racism in it. Um, but it's kind of unfortunate nowadays because, you know, it used to be taught in school curriculum, but it's not anymore because of vulgar language, which I don't blame it. The N-word is quite vulgar. But um, kind of missing out on one of our greatest American authors. Um, unfortunately, like, because it isn't taught in schools, then um, you, you're, you're really, like when we take American literature, I'm not going to be getting the full picture. But anyways, uh, Stanford College actually said, Huckleberry Finn is a masterful satire, not of slavery, which had been abolished a decade before Twain began writing the novel, but of the racism that suffused American society as Twain with the book in the late 1800s and early 1880s, and which continues to sustain America today. This theme is integral to Huckleberry Finn, as it is irrelevant to Tom Sawyer. Um, this quote from Stanford is really interesting because it kind of reveals um, that it's really useful, like, like it's, it applies today. Um, blatant racism in, today, in today's politics and world, world matters, like, um, for instance, the Black Lives Matters protests earlier. Um, this year is a really good example of it, of just um, racism gone a bit too far. By a bit too far, I mean existing in the first place. Uh, so you can really just relate. Like Mark Twain, is so, so far, it's shown to be timeless. What do you think? I can definitely agree with that standpoint. And I also think it's beautiful. I, it, he did it unintentionally, but Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are like foils to each other. They're parallels. Tom Sawyer sh- shows one side of what it was like living in the South, and Huckleberry Finn showed a completely different side. They were both extremely influential and focused on ideas of regionalism and realism, like other, like several other authors of that time, such as Henry David Thoreau, although he mostly focused on naturalism and transcendentalism. But I definitely agree with your point of how it, it's, a, it's extremely timeless. It can be presented and applied. The lesson that, or the main theme of Huckleberry Finn, it can be applied to several situations throughout history, including situations today. Well, that's all the time we really have for today, unfortunately. So I'll talk about the later years of his life, and then we'll kind of sign off. Um, Mark Twain actually had a pretty interesting later years for really an eccentric man. Um, he took many really children in as kind of, he tried to act as like a grandfatherly figure. Uh, the one that kind of stuck, stood out to me was that he took in a group of girls and called them his angelfish. That's weird. Kind of weird. Yeah, it was kind of weird. But uh, he taught them the basics of literature. And um, really after that, he lived, he lived a pretty fulfilling life. He settled down in Redding, uh, Kentucky, not Kentucky, Connecticut, and really just died away peacefully from a heart attack. You know? He left his kids. What? Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. But you know what I find really weird? How he has literally no relatives to this day. He has no direct descendants. Isn't that weird? Like, what happened? Definitely, definitely. 
Man just didn't get busy. I know. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah. So he left his um, kids at the time. Well, that's before they died. Uh, he left his kids at the time and his wife to look over after his estate. Um, anyways, guys, this was Mark Twain. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Uh, tune in next time when we'll be doing Absolutely No One because we're not going to repeat this again. Thank Bye. you so much for watching or listening. Bye.